Welcome back to another episode of the Dunkin' with Dom podcast. Micah, we're still in, it, you, know, you know what this reminds me of? It's like day 30 of like Panda Watch from the Anchorman, but we're on day 30 of Kevin Durant Watch, it seems like. It's good to have you on a talk some offseason, even though it's been a little bit slow since July started. And much like Anchorman in that time, it is on us now to make offseason news because ultimately during this part of the NBA offseason, it is pretty slow. Obviously, the draft and free agency has already happened. There are a couple of restricted names out there, but right now, Kevin Durant and Donovan Mitchell, who are probably the two most influential players during this offseason, if they are to be moved or no matter what transpires with their situations, that's again where we find ourselves. And as always, it's a pleasure to be here. I think it's time to get started with the Kevin Durant stuff because... I'm fortunate, but we didn't record. I recorded with another guest soon, an Eastern Conference pod, looking at the offseason, kind of doing a, a way too early predictions here. And I'm glad I haven't recorded it yet because this whole Kevin Durant thing came out that we haven't talked about, about him basically saying you either fire Steve Nash, the coach, and uh, Sean Marks, the uh, general manager, or you trade me. I think there's a lot to unpack there, but I think we should start off with you just answering what are some of the basic thoughts and premises to this decision by Durant? Because it, it seems Corey's trying to get the ball rolling on some sort of move here. Clearly, that's the case. And I think that the NBA somewhat answered this question a couple of days ago when they handed out the NBA Christmas Day slate. Perhaps they know something that we don't to this point, which is... They are giving a game to the New York Knicks hosted in New York versus the Brooklyn Nets playing anywhere. And that might indicate to tell us that Kevin Durant and or Kyrie Irving will not be on the team come day one of next year. And at the same time, there was a Mark Stein report the other day saying that there is at least one NBA executive that believes Kevin Durant is more likely to retire. Yeah, wow. Brooklyn Nets. Well, I think that that's probably out of the question at this point. Look, he's coming off of a season which he averaged 30. We all know that Kevin Durant still has a lot left in his tank. But one of the more pressing issues with this is the bind that he has he has put the Brooklyn Nets in, where Joe Sy now has to take a step in one direction or another, which is, I need to do what's right by the Brooklyn Nets, which he himself has said verbatim. And to me, that means that he is going to side with Steve Nash and Sean Marks over the two superstars. And this, to me, signifies more of the upper limits of what the player empowerment era can be in terms of a detriment to the league. Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving basically forced their way to Brooklyn. And now, several years later, they don't really have any hardware to show for their accomplishments there. And now they are doing their best to ruin something that during their first year together, they had a team that had Joe Harris as the sixth man, Jared Allen, Karis LeVert, Spencer Dinwiddie. All of them were on deals where if they wanted to make things work long term, that arguably was their best roster. And then if it's not that, once they brought in James Harden, they effectively became the best possession for possession offense the league had ever seen, even better than the Showtime Lakers. So at this point, from Kevin Durant's perspective, I think that the one place that makes a lot of sense for him is Boston, because I think that that's a place where you can amplify his strengths, both offensively and defensively. But man, this is 
really difficult on the Brooklyn Nets because Sean Marks, I think, has done a great job through all of this when it comes to dealing with some really cataclysmic personalities that are going to do whatever they want no matter what. Kevin Durant is a great player, but this is certainly not his forte. So what's interesting is that we haven't even gone five minutes in this pod and we mentioned the dreaded two-word phrase that is player empowerment. I think this is not only a referendum on player empowerment and a limitation on it, because what's interesting is that we're both NBA historians. Even the Anthony Davis trade, AD was a great player, arguably top five at the time of New Orleans. But I don't think we've seen a trade scenario like this since Kareem, in the sense of you've got this guy who's a MVP candidate in the middle still of his prime, under contract with one franchise basically saying, I want out. And I would argue the Durant thing is crazier because he's on a four-year deal that he just signed in 21. In terms of this, what we've seen also is, if we're going back to the player empowerment point, it is not just a referendum on player empowerment. I think it's a referendum on players running the team. Like, even if you look at, like, LeBron's career, for instance, like, I think one thing that separates LeBron's legacy a bit that I think people don't talk about is how you need to basically build this team around LeBron. Like, oh, I want this coach instead of that coach. Like, oh, I want Darvin Ham instead of Frank Vogel. Oh, I'm going to throw shade on Twitter that you trade Russell Westbrook. I won't sign my extension. And that has hurt teams before. Like, the famous thing is Cleveland in 2018, them not trading the eighth pick because they knew LeBron was leaving and they didn't want to trade an asset for a win-now player that would be aging or not on the team anymore. It wouldn't fit in a proper construct. This Durant situation is so fascinating because he's on a four-year deal. And I saw this in the Dunk the Dunked On pod. They, uh, Danny LaRue compared it to, like, a kid at a candy store. is like, Mom, I ate too much candy because you gave me a lot of candy and now I'm not feeling well. People forget that in order for KD and Kyrie to come to Brooklyn, they wanted Atkinson out. Atkinson was the coach of that awesome Brooklyn team that played Philly in the first round. And they were like, we want a player-centric coach in Steve Nash. And now three years later, they're saying they want that same coach fired and that they want Sean Marks fired. And even though, by the way, they were the orchestrators being uh, Durant and Kyrie, they were the orchestrators of the James Harden trade. They said trade seven draft picks, trade every single young player for Harden just for him to leave. And, and one last thing, we've seen this before in recent memory, like Jimmy Butler, Paul George to an extent. It's like evolved from like player empowerment to player empowerment. I'm going to screw over the team like Ben Simmons, James Harden, where he's like, yeah, I'm just going to like tank my way out of this. So I lose like market value to this Durant situation where it's like, this guy's just running the team, and Joe Sy, it seems like the owner, does not want to tolerate that. And he's already made a stance clear on Twitter. Like, he's not going to fire Marks or Nash to make Durant happy again. When Durant was partly responsible, and if honestly, nearly entirely responsible for the current situation of this Brooklyn Nets roster. So, okay, let me ask you a question now and follow-up. Do you think it is more likely that Kevin Durant decides to hold out if he is not traded, or... He shows up to training camp ready to go on day one. Because if you're asking me, I don't see Kevin Durant as the type to just choose the retirement or holdout option. I think that he probably will cave to whatever the Brooklyn Nets have, which is, hey, you know what? We haven't played with Ben Simmons yet. Let's give it a shot. I'll, 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 I was going to say, I'll answer your, your question with another question, which is like, I agree. I think Durant, here, here's the other problem too. This has got to affect his legacy, right? Just from a sense of like, this guy wants out. 
his two top destinations at the time were Phoenix and Miami, the two one seeds from the 22 season. Like, if this guy wants to be the best player on a title team, it still, like, it, it still feels like it's not going to happen. And I feel like he's just better off in Brooklyn. But I want to hear your thoughts on that. I think, he's, I think he goes to training camp. There's no way he mails it. Like, the only thing I can see is he mails it in the season like Harden and then kind of, like, forces his way out, kind of like Vince Carter with the Raptors, that scenario. But I don't see a... I don't see like a wait and just see. I think this. I think this is going to continue to play out. Yeah, I totally agree as well. Like I said, I think that if nothing happens from this point forward, Kevin Durant will be a Brooklyn Net, and he might not smile on the court, but he's going to be on the court and probably continuing to produce because that's the kind of player he is. But let me ask you this, and before we move on, when it comes to this whole situation, do you think that the current Brooklyn Nets roster is? the best that we've seen during the Durant and Irving era, or how would you rank them when it came to the Allen, LaVert, Dinwiddie team versus the rendition that we had with James Harden? It's interesting because I think we need to do this discussion pre-Harden trade and post-Harden trade. Because the big issue with the post-Harden trade is that this team really sucked on defense. Like, Remember they got like resurgent career Blake Griffin, all these guys. In the offseason last year, though, remember they got Paul Millsap, LaMarcus Aldridge, and a cook Blake Griffin. Their defense was one of the worst in the league just from a personnel standpoint. Maybe not in the numbers, but just you're looking at the roster and it's like... Is- the numbers were awful as well. There was a stretch of time where they were going to set records for the best offense ever, but also to be combated by the worst defense ever. And you can't win like that. I remember like the member the uh, what's his name uh, the da- not David Thompson uh, the Alex English Nuggets in the eighties. David Thompson, Dan Issel, and Alex English Nuggets in the early eighties, where nobody could stop them. But even take a team like the Showtime Lakers, who were a dominant offensive team because they were the greatest transition team we'd ever seen. Even they had Michael Cooper, Byron Scott, and Magic and Kareem, when they wanted to play defense, they were also very good. And that was one of the differences why a team that has proven it before, unlike the Brooklyn Nets, we know that they can turn a switch and go to another level in a playoff setting. And that's one of the reasons why, no matter what you saw when it came to struggles from the 01 and 02 Lakers in the regular season, especially in the defensive end, they would instantly change that because they have that championship pedigree already built into their system. If I'm ranking the Nets to answer your question, the 21 Nets were by far the best. I can't get over how dominant they were in the Boston series where I think Tatum scored, was it 45 or 50 points in one of those games to just make it a gentleman's sweep? But it was like, you needed so much out of them. And then after that, I would probably say... Honestly, the 22 Nets were not bad. An interesting thing is, do the 22 Nets outcome, is it different if the the vaccination thing doesn't exist? Because that's the craziest thing about all of this is like, we need to talk about Kyrie where he accepts the player option and Durant wants out immediately after. And it seems like there's now a separation between KD and Kyrie where I don't think Kyrie's leaving necessarily if KD leaves because the market value for him is so low. And... I, it, it, what's, what's just so fascinating about this, and I'll point this question to you. We answered it in July. We answered it in August. What is the reason why there's just no market for Kevin Durant and why we're just in limbo here? Because, I mean, and part of it's the contract. Part of it's the price with the Gobert trade just screwing over the market entirely for, for superstars. But there's a lot of factors here at play. You know, to me, I really don't understand it because 
I still see Kevin Durant, truthfully, as one of the five or six best players in basketball, unequivocally. And the place that I have built up in my mind as the perfect destination in theory is also a place that really isn't willing to budge when it comes to their player that they believe to be the next combination of an Adrian Dantley and Giannis put together, which is Scotty Barnes. And ah, to me, that is the place when it comes to Toronto as the true definition of where Kevin Durant would also potentially go and be great, similar to Kawhi, even if it was on a one-year rental, which of course it won't be given his current contract situation. So the reason that the market in short is not that big is because teams look at Kevin Durant after seeing what he did to the Brooklyn Nets when he's openly signed there versus being traded there kind of against his will as a real problem. So they don't want to sell out potentially for one or two great seasons and then he takes significant steps backwards and those teams are instantly facing the two years away from being two years away conundrum. I think the issue, honestly, is Durant because if you think about it, it's a sneaky bad thing about his resume in basketball where flamed out in OKC. The last year in Golden State was so much bad chemistry that Draymond admitted almost that KD already wanted out in the middle of the season, like he was never coming back. And then this Brooklyn thing, it's kind of like Harden-esque or even like Danley-esque or Bob McAdoo-esque where it's like, wait, this guy played for like four teams in five years. Like it's like very Westbrook-y. It's like, oh, Westbrook could be on his fifth team in five years if like the Lakers trade him. Durant's on that path where he's just been on so many teams in so little time. And at some point, it's got to be like, I mean, that, that's got to hurt the legacy. I mean, if we're doing the legacy bit now, I think the big thing, and it goes back to my earlier point, the reason why this isn't moving is people are overrating Durant's age and the Boston series, I think, in terms of like, oh, is Durant wearing down? Is Durant slowing down? He's 34 years old. We've seen what Curry can do. Durant is taller. Durant has way more shooting, equally as much shooting versatility, maybe a tier below than Curry. And his game will transition so well. I think the thing that's stalling teams is the four-year contract, where it's like, wait, if I get Durant, and then a year later he wants out, am I trading this guy again? And I just lost all my assets? Like, if I'm Boston, let's say, I would rather just run it back than trade seven first and Jalen Brown to get this guy who might be angry a year later. Even if I'm Toronto, like I'm not super high on Scotty. If I'm Toronto, I wouldn't trade like Scotty, OG, Thad Young and stuff and a bunch of picks to get Durant. If Durant just says, yeah, I'm going to pull Kawhi and leave after a year. Like it really is a complicated situation from the Durant side. Well, okay. I think that the Kawhi situation is not fair. First off, because he'll be a free agent. He was going to be a free agent after that one year. And that was the ultimate success run for one year. 2019 Kawhi, over a six-year portion, or a six-week portion, was arguably the best six weeks of any in his entire career. So I don't think that that's really a fair comparison. But the idea that they basically got a championship out of a one-year rental, yeah hardly a fair comparison Ah, this Durant thing is very difficult the one thing that I will say that kind of gets swept under the rug which is the Boston Celtics viewpoint of this they are setting themselves up at this point to run it back with their current roster because what they've actually been doing is siphoning the current roster by saying 
specific players that have been talked about, whether it be Derek White, Grant Williams, or Robert Williams as the third rotational player that would be a part of a potential Kevin Durant deal, the Boston Celtics have said on different occasions for each one of them, none of those players will be traded for Kevin Durant. So if you're Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart, the two players that obviously would be a part of a Kevin Durant deal, you at this point probably have to look at some of your teammates and the rest of the Boston Celtics front office and say, trade me now or we're just going to run it back because we truly believe we have all that it takes in order to get over the hump. And then if Jason Tatum plays like the true 1A versus a 1B superstar in the NBA Finals, who knows? Because if you're Jason Tatum at this point, you're already one of the 10 best players with a super high ceiling over these next few years to potentially become the best forward in the game, not named Giannis. Like, if you're Jason Tatum, you know that you're probably already as good as you will ever be when it comes to pull-up three-point shooting. You can just become the rim finisher that a big wing like a, a KD or Kawhi, not even LeBron level, but KD and Kawhi are near the rim. That's one of the best offensive and one of the best two-way players in the entire league. What's interesting is like we did the Russell pod, and I think something we underrated about Bill Russell and just we talked about this in NBA history the age of the NBA dynasty, I think, is over. Like, the the way we're going to see it now is probably more of, like, a Spurs-Warriors in a sense of, like, multiple revisions of the same team around a franchise player. Like, we've had four different champions and seven different teams out of eight possible spots in the NBA Finals in the last four seasons. Part of that's due to injury. Part of that's due to the influx of international players and draft players because of the rules. But part of it's also continuity and how we're just seeing like this Boston team with Brown and Tatum has been to war together in 2018 all the way until now and to just break that up like it's one thing if like this guy's a disgruntled superstar and you're able to get him like let's say Clyde Drexler with Houston because he was a perfect fit with Hakeem Olajuwon and that Rockets team but you built up this chemistry you built your entire offseason with the Brogdon and Gallinari trade uh, trades and signings to fulfill needs around Tatum and Brown and to just say, potentially, never mind, actually, we're going to trade Jalen Brown and all of our future, and maybe even Marcus Smart, too, who's the only vocal voice leader of that locker room for this guy who's just been an unhappy pallet, is the best way to put it. And I think this ties into, okay, we're still a month and another, it's almost been a month and a half of just the Kevin Durant watch, and we still have no traction. We know Phoenix is out of it because of the Aiden thing. It would have to be like Bridges, Crowder, and a bunch of stuff to make any of this make sense. And I don't think they do it. Miami, it's hard because of the Bam out of bio thing. And now the question is, do you trade Jimmy Butler? I wouldn't if I'm Miami. So what's the trade destination? If Durant wants to win and Brooklyn wants to get assets, what are some ideas? Toronto's the likely one. They've got the assets. They want to win. But I really don't see it. Finding a destination is incredibly difficult right now. That's why the market is thinning, and it's thinning quicker because Kevin Durant himself not only has not budged at all on his trade stance, but he also really hasn't made himself clear as to what his intentions are with a trade. We see him every now and then go on Twitter and react to people who are either just asking him questions or just trolling for the sake of trolling. And it seems to me that Kevin Durant, like I said earlier, is totally willing to throw away this trade request and show up to training camp ready to go. So here's the thing, is that 
I think another reason this ties into a later conversation, like the conversation we're going to have now, it's not just that the market has stalled. There's like all these dominoes where one of them needs to fall and none of them are falling. There's the Colin Sexton restricted free agency, the Miles Bridges uncertainty with that. The Donovan Mitchell thing, I think, is the big one, though, where you look at it. And I think teams are waiting to see if the Mitchell to New York thing happens before they go all in, because I think what's happening with the market is. Uh, teams relatively didn't do much in free agency. Like it was Malik Monk. It was a lot of like tier, like role player type guys. But the Gobert trade, the DeJounte Murray trade is basically putting a new price on superstars. And Durant is miles better than Gobert and way more ahead than DeJounte Murray. This ties into the Mitchell thing where we're on another, I think, what, what a month straight of potential Mitchell rumors right now. The New York thing is revamped up according to Shams as of today. It's Tuesday, August 16. Like, it's it's coming, there's traction, and nothing happens in the end. I feel like that that's the first domino I think that needs to fall before we uh before we see a Durant trade. And that could be months. Maybe Mitchell just stays in Utah. So first off, I would like to premise by saying I think that Donovan Mitchell will stay in Utah for the entirety of this season because I also spoke with somebody who works with the Jazz beat reporter, and he's spoken to Donovan about all of these rumors since they first began. Donovan has not requested a trade himself, unlike Kevin Durant. And Donovan, the same that I feel as well, also sees this season as a potential, I can put the entire team on my back kind of a season where right after we saw, you know, Russell Westbrook do something like this in 2017, we, there are a lot of other options. Or like Isaiah Thomas, when he was an MVP finalist with Boston, after they were able to move some other pieces, that's exactly what Donovan sees this season as, and it's also an opportunity for him to unlock the entire assets of his offensive game when it comes to coming off the screens, reading right, as well as being able to play the focal point point guard position that he really has not been able to play throughout the entirety of his career. I'm just going to read off the Shams tweet verbatim here. It says, after several weeks of no conversations, the Knicks and Jazz recently re-engaged in trade talks centered on Donovan Mitchell, sources tell me, and Tony Jones, who is the Utah Jazz representative for The Athletic. So it's not really saying anything besides there was another phone call for the first time in weeks between people from the Utah Jazz front office as well as people from the New York Knicks front office. They had decided to stop texting and decided to pick up the phone and call the other person. So. There's really no traction here. And Donovan Mitchell, at least as of right now, is committed to playing game one and hopefully game 82 with Utah Jazz because he sees this season as a real opportunity to prove himself both individually as well as a five-on-five player in the same way of I have the opportunity to wear the cape fully for the first time in my career because there's no question of, is it Don's team? Is it Rudy's team? Who brings the most value to the court? And he sees it as more of the like Batman, badass Damian Lillard type season. If you, you brought up so many points. So I kind of want to break this down. I think if we're doing the trade uh, angle first, there are so many wrenches with a Mitchell move. I think, for instance, the draft picks. Because the Utah Jazz are like, we don't want just seven picks. We want the Knicks picks. Whereas New York traded for these shitty protected Detroit picks in 2025 and Washington in 2028 and Denver and all that stuff. They're so devalued that Utah wouldn't want them. 
Number two, the RJ Barrett debacle, where the Knicks don't want to move him, it seems like. And I'm still kind of like questioning, like, what is RJ's NBA future? Like, is he a best player, like a Bradley Beal type on like a fringe playing team? Is he the best player or like the second best player on like a 45 win team? Is he just a third best player, just with lots of upside, kind of like Andrew Wigginsy in the sense of lots of hype, but not really, cannot really be a number one, has to be more like a two or three at the best. Like Wiggins, even Wiggins was like the second best player in Golden State, but if you had Wiggins instead of, if you had not had Curry and you had just Wiggins and somebody else, that team isn't as good. And the third thing is the Julius Randle thing, where the Knicks want to move Randle. He had a great year in 21, but it was an anomaly. And he was 2022. Randle in 2022 was Randle the previous seasons with the Pelicans and with the uh, with the Lakers. The Knicks probably want to move off Randle. The Jazz probably don't want Randle because they don't want extra wins and be like a 28 win team. They want to be, if they're going to trade Mitchell, they're going to bottom the hell out in this competitive West if they do it. But I think you bring up a good point with Mitchell. It's like, he's always been a great playoff performer. I would argue this past season with the defense slipping, that was a little bit concerning, but you get rid of the chemistry issues and you can build a team around Mitchell pretty easily. It's very Allen Iverson-y where give Mitchell the ball, surround him with tall defensive players who can at least stretch the floor and in theory be good. And except for having a Gobert rim roller, you need to have like a Miles Turner pick and pop guy or more of a DeAndre Aiden, prime DeAndre Jordan, just rim roller that cannot care about his role and can kind of just do his own thing. Like it, it, this Mitchell thing. And again, it's, it's what I said earlier, this Mitchell thing. If this doesn't resolve itself, I don't think the Kevin Durant thing resolves itself. But if we're looking at the New York based package based on the news we have now, I don't with all these wrenches in there and all these complications. I don't think a Mitchell move to New York is going to happen. They're they're just going to keep talking away. Yeah, and that's the way that I see this as well. Which is the more talk that we hear without any actual steps taken towards not just the phone call but anything put in writing, nothing's going to happen. It's Tuesday, August sixteenth. The Utah Jazz are expected to at some point today have at least their opener revealed as well as potentially a handful of games on their entire schedule. The NBA itself is going to begin in two week, in two months' time, regular season. And the idea that you're going to have this big of a blockbuster deal happen this close to the NBA season is very unlikely. And one more thing that I do want to talk about when it comes to this front is the two other teams who have been just sort of thrown in there for – existential purposes, which would be the Charlotte Hornets and Washington Wizards. Both of these teams, especially the Wizards, have made a couple moves this offseason that would boost their overall roster. The The Washington Wizards, to me, are a team that, if they were to land a guy like Donovan Mitchell, that is a team who I would now start to think of as a completely level up from where they personally are. But as we just harken back, the other team that I thought would have tried to enter these sweepstakes once they realized that the Kevin Durant sweepstakes are just stalled would be the Toronto Raptors. Like, if the Jazz call you up and they offer you Donovan Mitchell with no picks or Scotty Barnes, how do you look at that? Because automatically, to me, that feels like a somewhat championship nucleus potentially, for the Toronto Raptors because Pascal Siakam is not a one, especially when it comes to offense and being able to create his own shot within the flow of a 5-on-5 game. 
Fred Van Fleet is perfect as a three, but nobody thinks he's going to be anything more than that. He's a tenacious defender who you could also pair with Mitchell in the backcourt. But the one thing that you're needing on that current roster is an automatic 25 to 30 points a game in a playoff series. What's interesting is, again, I am lower on Scotty than a lot of people because I think the issue with Scotty is I think his offensive ceiling is more like OG with a little bit more ball handling. OG would be your three on that team, and Siakam plays the four. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing, too, is like it's a similar situation where solid team can win 45 games, win a couple first-round games, but that's it. You put in Mitchell there, suddenly, if I'm looking at it, I think Boston and Milwaukee are still your Tier 1 candidates. After that, though, I need to see it from Philly. Miami, I'd argue, has regressed and we're kind of peace right now and how I think they've not improved. I think Toronto's right there as the, five, the fifth best team and possibly the third best team in the conference with Mitchell. And this ties into the New York Knicks thing where if Mitchell is your best player in New York, right, and you have Brunson, him, Robinson, I would assume Randall's probably still there in Barrett and they're going to trade all these youngsters – are they really that much better? Because here, here's the challenge with New York. You want to trade for a star and you don't want to pull the Carmelo Anthony thing again where you overpay for Carmelo Anthony and you can win one playoff series and that's it. On the other hand, though, you can't get that tier A star, whether it's LeBron, Durant, Kawhi, your juggernauts, without a second guy in place. Like This isn't like 2010 like Heat where you can just get just Wade and then add Bosch and LeBron in free agency. It's going to come through a trade. Uh, either a demand out or anything along those lines. I, I, I'm asking, like, how much better is the, are the Knicks with Mitchell? Because I think it's an improvement. They're probably a guaranteed playoff team, like maybe six seed, but that's probably it, really. So last I checked, Vegas had put the over-under on the Knicks wins at just a hair below 500 for this coming season, which, if you're the Knicks, that is a massive failure, especially after the Jalen Brunson deal. With Donovan Mitchell, you're probably looking at a tough out in round one, a team that squeaks out of the play-in, which, again, that's still not where you wanted to be two years ago when you thought you made huge improvements. And it looked like R.J. Barrett was going to be a perennial all-star in the league, but it turns out he's one of, if not the worst, ISO scorers in the league, and he still is going to have to have the ball in his hands all the time in order for you to generate enough points. So... With Donovan Mitchell, you're going to pick up some of that extra point accumulation that you're going to need in order to match score for score with these teams. But Mitchell does bleed a lot of value on the defensive end. And having him and Brunson, again, in the backcourt, it's not like having him and Van Fleet. They're both undersized, but at least Mitchell would probably learn how to play a little more tenacious and focused defense, which we've seen him even coming out of college, he was hailed as a guy that just needs to learn how to play offense. And now it, it's funny. He was defense that needed offense. Now he's offense that forgot how to play defense. <laughs> yep. So we know that he has those kinds of tools. We're not asking to be an all defensive guard. He doesn't have to be a Marcus Smart or Drew Holiday, but just learning how to be, you know, Anthony Simons defensively, just be able to navigate screens and don't lose your man when you're not guarding the ball. Certainly things that he can learn how to play with Toronto that have the 6-8 wing only like five different kinds. So with the Knicks, back to them, I don't think that you're looking at anything when it comes to a threat to Boston or Milwaukee. And if you're not going to be a threat to any of those two teams, that they're just going to 
roll over you in five games, whether or not you actually gave it your all. I don't see the real point in going all out for that. Unless you bring Donovan Mitchell in to be the Robin to a potential Batman that you can bring in. Because right now in the NBA, if we talk about like this meme is like he's a 10, but the 10s in the league, I would say, are anything Kawhi or better. Yeah. Kawhi's fucking bead or better. If you don't have a player on that level, it's really hard to win a championship. We, we've so seen I'm it. Thinking. Only only 2004 with the Pistons when that weird abnormal year just for everybody, when the, like, the, the scoring was down, teams that just played good defense and can win 65-62, that was the only like admiration. Every other team, if you look at the roster – had that level of guy like LeBron, Durant, Curry, Kawhi, even Tim Duncan, Kawhi again in the Spurs. Like it's all Kobe, KG, or Pierce, depending on like who you pick. Like it's always been an MVP candidate, top five-ish player, maybe top seven. There's a reason why I'm always down on teams like the Blazers with Lillard or oh, there's some like even Mitchell with Utah because I think there is a ceiling with that sort of player. You can win a playoff series. Maybe make a second round competitive, but that's your cap. Even like when Devin Booker took the Suns in 21 to the finals, there was a lot of luck with that. The Lakers were injured, Clippers without Kawhi, and they still took him to six games, by the way, with not having Kawhi. Without Jamal Murray as well. Yeah, like, you, like there is an, abnormal, an abnormality to this. So, I mean, the, the other thing too is like, so I gotta, you're a Utah fan, of course. Would you rather have... Like, would you trade Mitchell and rather have R.J. Barrett instead of Mitchell? And if you're not, if you're saying no, what what would you want as the ideal package if you're trading Mitchell? Oh, I want Scotty Barnes, and I would want Scotty to be able to play alongside a potential future guard that can be a one-two. Because ultimately, as a Jazz fan, like the ideal scenario would have been to hold on to Gobert and then just pray that in a couple of years' time that Tatum would potentially want to sign with the Jazz, and then you instantly have the nucleus of easily the best young duo in the league and potentially the best duo, period, with Mitchell and Tatum. But that's not the case, obviously, at this point. So it's time to fully sell out shop. But with all of these numbers and packages that we saw, Danny Ains put the Boston Celtics through when it came back to the selling of KG and Pierce after that era was over, those picks turned into Tatum and Brown. If something happens like that and starts right away with a Victor Wembanyama, then it absolutely would be worth it. And that's probably something that Mitchell would not allow happen if he's on the team, which is I totally think that he is capable of having one of those AI or Damian Lillard-like seasons where he's the clear number one everything on the offensive end runs through him as the main engine and the jazz still find a way to squeak in to not necessarily the playoffs, but certainly a play in team in the Western conference. And they're fully out of the Wembanyama sweepstakes. But if that is the full sellout that the jazz are going, the jazz could totally move Mitchell right now and, you know, have a team that you run out the starting core of Tyler hero, Patrick Beverly, Jared Vanderbilt, Boyan, and Walker Kessler, and you are walking into a 21 team. So last point on the Mitchell thing before we do our last segment, but 
as a Miami guy, I've done multiple pods with the same guest, and we're just like, is there a way we can land Mitchell? Because he would just be such a perfect fit. The issue, though, I think is the draft picks, not only the lack of them, but also the Heat are always good. Like, the Heat haven't had a bad season. Even, like, when they had, like, the Deion Waiters, like, James Johnson team, they still won 40-ish games or 30. Yeah, thir- 37 games with Jarno Stokes starting. Like, we've done that before. The Knicks have just always been bad. I think they've only had, since 2010, they had a winning season in 20, with Melo in 11, 12, and 13. Yeah, and then and then they won. They made the playoffs again in 21. That's it. It's like three playoff uh, appearances since 2010. It's unbelievable. If, if you're Miami, though, tying it to Miami – can you pull it off? Or is, is the draft capital look? Because an underrated narrative from Miami this year, I think, and it's, again, in this article I'm working on, they really didn't improve, and I think they got worse in an improving conference. Like, even the Knicks, they're going to be better this year than they were last year. The Hawks are going to be better. Cleveland will be healthy, hopefully. Chicago's still good. And we haven't even talked about Toronto, Philly, Boston, Milwaukee. I feel like if you don't make the Mitchell trade, you don't improve. At the same time, this Tyler Hero extension where – do, if I'm Utah, do I want to pay Hero four years, 100-plus million to be a 20-point scorer that can't really do anything else? I'm, I'm kind of, I would rather have R.J. Barrett, but he's also up for a new extension too. So it, it's difficult all around for that, that prime asset. If the Jazz are going to move Mitchell, it sounds like it's a full rebuild at this point. So they're not really looking for a similar style package, but obviously a step down from the KD what the Nets want to what the Jazz might potentially get in terms of an upper-level deal for Mitchell, it would be a full sellout in the form of five or six first-round draft picks and three young players that are in their first or second year that have some qualities about them that could be tapped into, and they just probably need coaching and more time on the court in order to fully develop. When The Jazz at this point are not looking for established borderline stars that would be able to step in and potentially be Mitchell in a couple of years. Okay, we got to end on this note. Let's do the Christmas games because there's no other uh, there's no other free agency news to talk about. There's no uh, no massive moves as of yet. Shams released the Christmas schedule: Bucks at Celtics, Sixers at Knicks, Suns at Nuggets, Lakers at Mavs, Grizzlies at Warriors. So instantly, what stands out? We've got multiple rematches of Bucks Celtics. Suns Nuggets, hopefully with Murray healthy, Grizzlies Warriors. Other thing, Miami. Miami fans are going crazy of them not being in this in the Christmas game, which honestly it's a Christmas game, really no big deal. But you made an earlier point. The Knicks thing stands out that they got a slot in there. Uh, Lakers Mavs stands out because I feel like they always love the Lakers Mavs games. But thoughts on the Christmas games and if it has any implications whatsoever, which I honestly think it's got a little bit, but not really. Yeah, I would say a little bit, but not really almost verbatim is the right take here because maybe the NBA knows something that we don't when it comes to a potential Nets full rebuild and them choosing the Sean Marks and Steve Nash route over Durant and Kyrie Irving at their expense. And at that point, the Knicks are going to be a team that sells more tickets, is probably going to get more eyes on the court, especially if Durant and Irving are not playing. And then the other thing you have to remember about Christmas Day games is the hype behind them is so often more than the actuality in terms of the product. Like, for example, going into that 2017 season, the Christmas game between the Warriors and Cavs when Kyrie hit the game winner, 
the only other time that those two teams faced each other that year, Irving didn't even play, and the Warriors won by 37 against the Cavs. <laughs> so that was the only time that you can actually see like all of these potential guys in what could be an all-time great finals series as a preview on Christmas Day. So besides that, we've seen other renditions of games that are built up like that. Like last year with the Nets and the Lakers, when AD wasn't playing, Durant was not playing, and it basically came down to Russell Westbrook forgetting where Patty Mills was. Well, and Kyrie wasn't playing. He was because it, it was in LA. I remember the Lakers were down like twenty, and they came back, and it was just Harden and Patty Mills just cooking them. Yeah. So, like I said, the application is nowhere near what the theory is of these games on Christmas Day because no team, if you know that you're that good, wants to fully share your hand in front of the entire world who on Christmas Day is going to be like that. Then the other thing that I took away from this Knicks versus Nets thing is the NBA knows that they are up against the NFL on Christmas Day this year when it comes to a few games, which that's week 16 in the NFL. And the as long as the NFL and NBA are going to cross over in terms of potential ratings during a huge day like Christmas... The NFL is going to take a W every time because that's week 16 and it's close to the playoffs. So the NBA probably took more of a business standpoint when it comes to the Knicks versus the Nets, which is, hey, we don't know what's going to happen with the Nets at this point. We might know something that even beat reporters and insiders don't, but we know that the Knicks are going to attract more eyes. They have more fans. Let's just do it this way. Then with the other games, I like most of them. The whoop that trick narrative with the Memphis Grizzlies continuing to talk trash to the Warriors. Why are you poking the bear? Like, why? Can can, can you win? You don't more bullets and board material. Can you not almost lose to the T Wolves in the first round first before we get talking? <laughs> <laughs> so here, let's do two more offseason points really quickly. I did an article recently for the lead on Westbrook, and clearly it seems like. This could be the end of the road for Westbrook, just the lack of value in 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 that. But we before like the last time we recorded, there was the the Indiana Pacers rumor for Miles Turner, Buddy Heald, and the Lakers would give up Westbrook and a first, and Pacers want two first. If you're the Lakers, are you sending Westbrook home? Are you trading multiple first rounders to just get anybody in return, or are you running it back? Personally, I think running it back as it stands with the Westbrook AD LeBron trio is going to be horrible because we've already seen it for a year. But what do you do in that situation? I think at this point, the Lakers have really tied themselves to a pole. How much does that 2029 first round pick actually mean? Yeah, if DeJounte Murray was traded for three first, and I, I, I'm not a Murray fan, so. <laughs> if LeBron is still in the league at 20, in 2029, then sue me. He would be able to play with both of his sons in the league. I don't think that the likelihood of that is very high, but I'm also not going to put anything past LeBron. I think that he's going to retire with 10,000 more points than anyone ever, despite not being called a scorer. So potentially that 2029 first round pick means something, but in the meantime, that's seven years away. You've already made it clear that you're the Lakers, that the 2027 first round pick doesn't mean anything and you're fully willing to give that away. If the difference between that and the Kyrie Irving deal being done is just the 2029 pick. Do it. 
<laughs> your only route to win an NBA championship is to move off of Russell Westbrook. And Kyrie Irving, we've already seen the nucleus of him and LeBron working together. Now take that and imagine what it's like where LeBron is at his physical, near his physical apex, but is now a full-time point guard playing alongside Kyrie where he can play off ball. And AD is arguably the best rim attacker and rim rolling big ever, or at least in the modern game, in terms of percentages, he is number one all time. So you get to put another like guy like that as a defensive backstop. And we've seen throughout the years that as long as a big three has the capabilities to play defense, that's a championship nucleus. And I don't think that LeBron James is done competing for championships during his career. Move that 2029 first round draft pick or suffer the consequences and watch LeBron James potentially go back to Cleveland, which by the way, even if that doesn't happen, I'd like to have it on the record. I do believe he will retire as a Cavalier, even if it's on just a one, one day contract at the end of his career. One last note on the Westbrook thing before we do our final subject, but we, we just brought it up how title windows open and close. You never know what's going to happen. And it's so uncertain by the end of the season who actually can win, which is why I will never bet on championship odds ever. But, but if I'm the Lakers and I've got AD in his prime and LeBron clearly still kicking it, you maximize that window now while you can. Like you traded all these first to get Anthony Davis, not knowing that this would work and it worked. I don't see why you don't do that again because you want to protect the franchise. Your franchise is losing now in the long term if you have LeBron and AD and can't make the playoffs. And I think just from an image standpoint, that hurts the team. Last note, but the theme of this podcast with the Durant Mitchell thing is just player empowerment, movement of players, superstars are just not staying home. There's been little rumblings about this, and I've predicted this. I'm putting this on the record multiple times. I'm doing it again here. I think there's going to be some sort of lockout, and if not a lockout, just a bitter debate with the CBA. For the last question for you, do you think that happens in the near future? I think it is incredibly likely with what happened with Gobert, Harden, Simmons. I think now with Durant and with Mitchell, what's happening, it clearly something's going to be changed from the owner side of things and from the player side of things. But what are your thoughts? I absolutely believe this, and I've honestly believed this since the day that Kevin Durant decided to sign with the Golden State Warriors, which is, at some point, player empowerment when it comes to having too much of the balance of power in the NBA is going to tilt the scale back completely the other direction, and these two sides are going to find themselves at a standstill. I don't think that it happens this season, because ultimately I think that we're close enough to the season that... Any rumblings about that, we probably would have heard about and we're in the clear for this coming season. But I can totally see that throughout another upcoming season in the NBA. And I honestly just, if all of the teams are as presently constituted going into this NBA season and Kevin Durant is motivated to give it a a go again, there are so many really good teams in the league, especially in the Western Conference, that... I just kind of want to see how it plays out. It'll be interesting to see if anything changes in the next couple of days because this episode will come out tomorrow. We'll see, does the ball get rolling on some of this stuff or are we going to be again in limbo until September and possibly right before training camp? But Micah, it's still, even if it's slow news day, 
fantastic, not only episode, but just like fantastic time to just be an NBA fan because once one domino falls, it could just be like free agency round two and it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Thanks for joining the pod. Absolutely. Always my pleasure.